along to season four, episode of LOI Weekly with Johnny Ward and Dan McDonald in association with Air Sports and Independent.ie. We've two guests on the show today. Uh, firstly, we're going to speak to Rory Higgins, who's obviously uh, been appointed to the Irish management staff, and Porrick Ammond, who played uh, for Sligo Rovers, Kildare County Shamrock Rovers in the League of Ireland and has had a great career in England. He's going to be joining us later on. That's a, um, a recording from a little bit earlier in the week. So we have a packed show. And uh, we'll discuss, obviously, the impending return of football, or certainly so we, we will hope. Uh, first of all, we'll just get to Dan. Dan, what is the story? How are you getting on? Yeah, I'm good, Johnny. Yeah, we'll, 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 we'll talk about that stuff later on, I guess. But I wonder... story. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously a lot of... We were speaking now on Wednesday, and I suppose most people would be listening, you know, late Wednesday or early Thursday, and um, we're expecting a lot of developments and probably hopefully expecting firm details tomorrow. But I think the statements from clubs would make it seem like they're going to take some time to consider whatever is put to them. So uh, it may not be a situation that Thursday is decision day. It might just be another another day. Um, but we'll maybe knock it, you know, go over the detail of that a bit later on. Yeah, I suppose we're all waiting for clarity in the form of an Athlone Town statement or something like that. But let's get to Rory Higgins, uh, who's coming from Derry, I think, this morning. Rory, you're obviously... Um, realising a, a major ambition of yours for years, which was to get on this podcast. Um, so you're obviously <laughs> excited about that. How are you getting on? <laughs> How are you, Johnny? Um, obviously, fine. I'm based in Derry now at the moment, but um, as you said, it's been a, a lifelong dream uh, to, be on a, to be on a podcast with yourself. And <laughs> it's something that I'm absolutely thrilled about, Johnny. You sound it, you sound it. What, what is this story which uh, are you, have you um, firmed up the Irish uh, position now? Um, because obviously it's, it's been, a, I suppose, a little bit of a drawn out process since it was initially mentioned there a few weeks ago or months ago or whenever it was. Yeah, it's, it's put to bed now and that's, um, it was long enough drawn out, but uh, just delighted now that it's finalised and, and, and can get to work now on what's going to be a, an exciting chapter in my life. How did this start? So, um, I suppose if you go back, uh, we, we talk about your career in due course, but how did this uh, process of you uh, joining Stephen Kenny's backroom team start? And uh, was it something that you expected to happen sooner or later, or was it did it take you by surprise? Obviously, there was an element of, of surprise, but Stephen was due to obviously take over um, first of August initially, and then it was accelerated because of what's going on in the world. But um, he was announced on, on the Saturday, I think it was, and then on the Friday the approach was made to Dundalk, and I kind of went from there. But obviously, I was delighted to to, to get the call and um, delighted to be in the position that I'm in um, now. Yeah. And um, what was it like going to Dundalk then and kind of, I suppose, you know, talking about this because you've developed an unbelievable relationship with that club initially as a player and in various guises in management then. And obviously there comes a time, like all relationships, I guess, when you have to break uh, apart and that must have been a bit difficult. It is. It's a, it's a huge... The biggest disappointing thing for me was actually not getting to see the players and the staff in person because obviously we haven't been allowed to, but... That was the biggest disappointment, but I made a, I made a point of, of contacting every single player in the squad and, and thanking them. Um, what I would say about the group of players at Dundalk, they're the most grounded and probably most professional group of people that I've ever worked with, and, and, and they deserve all the, the credit and honours that they've had in the last 
number of years and, and in particular the core group of players that have been there from what 2013 2014 they're, they're, they're special people and they've driven that club forward and along with the staff and um, my time at Dundalk was special and it's something that I'll never forget and I'm very thankful for and I suppose you've Learned an awful lot as well. It's given you um, a great platform to go into. You know, I, I, I envisage that your next job from Dundalk would be a management job somewhere. So it hasn't quite worked out like that. But in terms of your um, future in the game, you must have gotten a great education at Dundalk between the league titles and FAI Cup wins and those trips to Europe as well when you were initially were doing opposition analysis, which is obviously your new role with Ireland. Yeah, it was... Uh... I suppose the, the transformation from playing was a smooth one because I didn't go into uh, a day-to-day -day on the pitch with the players. It was a smooth transition. I was the the they watching the opposition and, and helping in that regard. So um, the experience that I gained initially was was what helped me go into the assistant manager's job. And it's been it's been quite smooth the whole way through. And uh, as you said, the experience I've gained um, and We've been very successful in that period. So, again, I'm just delighted to be a small part in the recent success of the club. But um, it's been, as you said, one in, one in the league as a player and then as opposition analyst and then as a, an assistant manager. It was, it was, it was a really special period for, in my life. And, and, and it's something that I suppose I've, I will have a real soft spot for the club going forward. And, and, and I'll stay in touch with everybody and, and hope that that success continues. So, Murray, your job title now, you are the, what, well, I think it's the, the chief scout for the national team and opposition analysis. I mean, just in, in real terms, what, what does that job actually involve? I mean, what is your, what's your week-to-week -week now and, and maybe in more normal times as well? Well, the week-to-week -week now is where um, Stephen gives you basically a task, um, task to do individually through the week and then report towards the end of the week and um, one thing I can assure you is there'll be no stone left unturned um, we will we'll work hard together as a management team and, and, and staff and and um, we'll prepare we'll prepare accordingly but the, the actual the actual job title it'll be once the once we're allowed to travel once we're allowed to go back to England and Scotland or wherever um, I'll be away probably midweek and at weekends um, watching our players and reporting back as will the rest of the staff and um, and then a lot of the times I watching the opposition I won't be able to be at our games I would imagine um, if it can be then brilliant but uh, a lot of the times I'll be if there's a back-to-back -back double header then I'll be off watching who we play next and, and reporting back with, with hopefully the right information and, and we can plan accordingly. I, I mean, in the short term, I mean, this is just a, out of curiosity. I mean, as you said, when, you're, when people are allowed to travel and all the strict closed doors protocols for Premier League games, do we know if actually other managers and people are actually allowed to go at the moment? I'm guessing probably not. So does, does that mean just TV viewing then of games for the next while, like for the foreseeable? Or what's the, the understanding of that? As it stands, it's currently up in the air, but what I'm led to believe is that we probably won't be able to go and uh, be at the games and, and, and watch it and watch it from the stands. But um, listen, we just have to adapt and make the most of it. And 
the games will be up on 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 various Y Scout and that we'll be able to we'll be able to study them in more detail. Uh, but nothing beats, as I say, nothing beats a bird's eye view and, and, and getting a good look at the game. And, um, but we, we you just have to be adaptable, and and when the time comes that we can we can actually go and, and watch the games live, then great. But for the time being, I can't see that happening unless there's a, there's a change. So the first time you spoke to Stephen, um, what are you thinking? Wow. Um, is, this, is this back in uh, Derry or back in... No, uh, no, no, yeah. no. First time about this job. We can go back to that in due course. But when That's it was, in part three of the show, yeah. When, when it was put to you that actually, you know, you have an opportunity to be part of the, the Irish management staff. Like what... When you were poached, more or less. Is that what you're saying, then? <laughs> I'm not going to... Yeah, whenever the discussion took place, what were the thoughts that, that crossed your mind? Um, slightly surprised in one sense, but then, obviously, I have a history with Stephen. Uh, but, obviously, we're, it's a new level now. It's international football. It's elite players, elite coaches. Um, so, first and foremost, it was like, it was it was just real pride and, and uh, a privilege to be asked. And to be honest, as I had an unbelievable time at Dundalk, but there wasn't much um, like these opportunities to work in international football for your country don't come around too often. And like at this stage in my life, it's just it's just something that was impossible for me to turn down. Yeah, because. You know your story is like a lot of story of uh, stories of people in the League of Ireland that you were away. I mean, I'm sure you know as a teenager, you you know you had ambitions of, of playing at that level, of course, and and you know you know achieving dreams in the game like every kid who starts off. So I don't know, like when when you spend your career in in, in the League of Ireland, it's not it's there isn't an assumption there that you're going to get that opportunity to work in that environment in in later life, but that door has been open now and is that sort of like you know what what sort of advertisement is that for sort of even the coaching route in the league and what it can open to for the doors that can open for people in the second stage of their career if not maybe as a player but in a, in a different avenue and with your experience in the game yeah it's a it's a good question um obviously i never envisaged Three years ago, or four years ago, when I retired at Corian, that I'd be working on international football a few years later. But um, again, I I can't speak for other coaches in, in, in Ireland, but um, I have a bit of an obsession with the game, uh, and 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 those that know me will 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 vouch for that. But I think I've been I've been fortunate enough in the sense that. That Stephen, uh, deservedly so, has, has got has got the top job now, and, and Stephen sees value in what I bring to him. So, uh, it's just it's just a case of of <laughs> I don't know. It's it's a hard question to answer because I, I I probably felt from a very early age or very early stage in my career as a player that I would never reach the top level because of my, to be honest, my lack of mobility to get around the pitch. I ticked a lot of boxes in other sense. I could pass the ball. I, I read the game well and stuff like that. But I never had the athleticism needed now to be to be a top player. But um, I probably felt early on in my career that I might have a bit more to offer uh, with my career 
strangely enough, that, that's how I felt from very early on that I might have a bit more to offer when your playing career finishes. And and I'm in the infancy of 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 my coaching and career, so um, I'm not saying that I'm brilliant or anything like that. What I'm saying is that uh, I've I've got myself into a really good position now, and, and um, it's something that I felt that or something that I feel I'm capable of and something that I wouldn't have took on if I didn't think so. And this was early in your playing career at Derry that Stephen Kenny seemed to cotton on to that. Like, so it was quite unusual, wasn't it? Because he respected your opinion in terms of maybe off the pitch and in terms of, I suppose, uh, what would become a coaching career when you were basically in your, in your early to mid-20s, didn't he? Well, I don't know. I think he always... I, I was a thinker of the game, always a deep thinker of the game. And it's been my life, really. Um, I left home at 14 uh, to go to Coventry. And I remember um, the coaches at Coventry telling me from 17, 18 years of age, go and get your coaching badges. And and, and they felt that I would have a lot to offer when I stopped playing. But um, <laughs> maybe that was their way of telling me I wasn't good enough to be there. <laughs> to play at the top level in England. But... Um, no, listen. I always had a relationship with Stephen, where he, he he would he would have bounced things off me. He he would never have <laughs> given me that much of a say, obviously because I was his player. But he would have bounced things off me, and, and obviously felt that uh, we probably seen the game through the CMAs, and and um, we respect each other's opinions. Simple as that. And your spell at at Coventry, like when was the realization there that you may. Mentioned that I, I imagine what you're saying, an awful lot of players can relate to that. It was it was in their head, and maybe ability wise was there, but just there was something lacking. When did that dawn on you that maybe you weren't going to quite reach the heights that you'd hoped for? Um, to be honest, there was a there, there was a genuinely a period. Um, I remember I, I wasn't I wasn't known for scoring goals whatsoever. I never really crossed the halfway line to score a goal, but. Um, I remember my debut in the reserves, I think it was 17 away to Fulham. Fulham had a really good uh, reserves team. They were top of the league actually and they scored two and we drew two all and um, there, there, there was a bit of, I don't know, there, there, was a, there was a definite period in my time there where, where I felt that I could break into the first team and I felt that I had a, had a future in the game at that level but the bottom line is, as the game moved on, um, it became obvious that athleticism was a huge part of it, and 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 I didn't take that box, and that's just that's genetic, um, and and unfortunately, uh, I didn't have the legs of a Richie Toyle or a Chris Shields or, or whatever. But um, the, the the career I then had in the League of Ireland was probably due to uh, having a, having a decent enough football brain. And how would you assess your career in the League of Ireland? Very successful. Um, mm. Won everything that there was they won in the league and, 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 played, and played good parts in a lot of it. And um, Probably the, the one disappointing thing for me was going away from the League of Ireland was how I finished my career at Coleraine. Uh, it's a bit of a regret. Um, I probably had my coaching hat on uh, the second I left on dock, I was 31 years of age. Um, I probably didn't do myself justice at Corian. I was coaching. I was I was head coach of the Corian under 15 team 
who was probably the best team at the club at that time. And and I think from that point on, uh, I didn't forget about the playing side, but but my main um, what could you say? My main objective was coaching and becoming the best coach that I could possibly be. So, so you had the initial approach then from from Stephen to go to the Dundalk staff, which is the start of the next stage. Now, we we had you know St- Stephen O'Donnell and Paddy McCourt on not long ago talking about Stephen. We've had a lot of people talking about Stephen, David Ford, and Mark Rossiter and Alan Murphy. And I mean, we all know that the, the, the slight quirks that Stephen has, and as players, like I think it can be quite endearing. And as a player, you probably get used to just dealing with Stephen. But obviously, being on a staff is a different, maybe a different type of relationship or a different type of dynamic. Or like, how did you feel about making that leap to being part of a staff? And and did you have a sense of what it was going to be like from being as a player? Or did you see more of them maybe behind the staff room door as such when you're in different type of discussions maybe than you might as a player? I understand the question, but he... he he has the same sort of. He, uh, I know people talk about how he makes you feel as a player, but genuinely, when you're doing a good job for him on his staff, he makes he, it's the same thing. He gives you that confidence. He, if you've done something well, he'll tell you. Be the first to tell you, and, and he, he's he's giving people confidence. That he's he, he's the best that I've ever seen, and um, it's a really special trait that he has, and and and. Uh, throughout my career, um, my playing career, he made he always <laughs> he always referenced that uh, you had to you had to make room for for creative players who could maybe not get around the pitch, and and he just gave me that belief that I could have a career in the game, and and, and obviously moving on past the playing side, he's given me that belief that I could go on and have a, and have a good career and in this side of things, but. He gives the staff confidence as well, Dan. That's what I would say. It's not mm. just the players. Um, he works in similar ways with staff. Because, like, Sorry, I'm, I'm guessing, that, I'm, I'm guessing that, like, your 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 job under Stephen. I know you've had a much more broader role under Vinny, and we'll discuss that. But say with with Stephen, like that opposition analysis role, and I know Stephen O'Donnell did the same thing. That. Like there's an element of trust involved, I guess, and all of a sudden you find yourself, I don't know, in Cyprus or wherever you were, you know, watching Estonia, like watching a team, and all of a sudden, like you're away on your own. It's your report. It's it's your. It's it's not just you're bringing a video back or something. It's not. It's it's way more than that. So, is there an element of trust in that? And how did you find that experience of of going away yourself and not having other people to in the team environment to bounce something off? That it's very much you and your assessments and, and your views? I think that's the way Stephen likes it. He, 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 like, I remember going to games with him and I would say, well, we sit together and he would say, no, you sit over there, I'll sit over here. Um, because you can you can influence each other's... Uh, if I'm sitting watching a match with you... Yeah, I, of I course. Could influence, I could maybe influence your opinion, you could maybe influence mine. So he, he's big in the sense that Go and watch the game with your own eyes. I trust your eyes and come back and give me the information that I need. Um, I suppose when it's going to be hugely important is when there's little time between matches. So if there's a Friday and Monday game, uh, like the staff mightn't have as much time to prepare um, in that period. So basically, what, what 
like between now and the Finland and Bulgaria games, we have we have so much time to like we can all analyze it and we can all. But it's the crucial bit is going to be when there's no time yeah. to prepare in between, and 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 that information in that one or two day window will be crucial. And and like obviously, in my short time with, with Stephen and Damien and and, and Keith, um, they're very. They're, they're all very, very good on the game. So uh, we can all bounce things off each other in, in, in the next few months in relation to the first two Nations League games. But when it comes to busy schedules, when, there, when there's very little time in between, then then it's going to, they're going to rely a lot on the information that I bring. How much do the, the European kind of um, studying of teams bring you on? And also, how did you find that role compared to the role of assistant manager? Which did you prefer of the two? Um, it's a good question. Which did I prefer? Probably, I think uh, you have more day-to-day -day -day dealings as an assistant manager, but I think in terms of my skill set, um, I feel the analysis side is probably my stronger part. I like coaching. I think I'm, I'm, I think I'm not, I think I'm a decent coach, but I think my, my, my skill set is, is assessing and, and and, and sort of tactically looking at things, I think that would be my biggest asset. But um, going back to your question, I suppose the confidence that I, I gained great confidence from the Rosenberg. I know we, we, we lost an, an, an extra time in the second leg, but I gained great confidence from the Rosenberg away game where um, we probably, over the course of it, deserved to go through and we had the better chances. and. I felt that uh, not just myself, but as a staff, we, we, we got we got that spot on, and um, that was a, t a thing. From that moment on, that gave me great belief going forward that that, that I could work at a, at a good level. And the role itself. So you're you're. How do you break this down? So you're obviously trying to suss out the kind of qualities and attributes of each individual player in the opposition, as well as tactics. But are you? Is the first thing you're doing looking for a weakness that you can exploit, particularly when you're playing superior opposition, or how does it work? Well, you've got to look. You can't be naive. You've got to look at their strengths and and and, and combat their strengths. But then, like, obviously working under 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 Stephen Kenny in that role. He, he's brave. He's he's a brave manager. He wants to go and beat teams. So his big thing is what are their weaknesses? Well, and so basically, it's a big thing for me as well. I like attacking football, and I like I like teams to open up and have a go. So um, it's it's I suppose it's a really uh, it's really fulfilling when when you do spot a weakness and 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 you and you exploit it. That's 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 a great part of the job. But um, Obviously, Stephen tactically is very astute as well, and, and, and Keith and Damien. So I'm just a small part of, of, of what we're going to do. But as I said to Dan earlier, the, the, the key parts will be when there's, when there's very little time to prepare in between matches. Um, that'll be where I'll come under the most, not pressure, but I'll, I'll be the one that... I'll be the one that they'll, they'll rely on for the information. And you mentioned pressure. Do you feel that you um, do you feel that the players will buy into you, or do you have a little bit to prove to to show them that actually, yeah, I, I know what I'm doing here? No, I'm confident in my ability, Johnny, and, and it's uh, just because I've I've only played in the league of a lot of the top managers in the world at present were never high-profile footballers, so. Um, 
I've had a I've had a good playing career, not a top playing career, I've had a good playing career and but I'm not a player anymore. Um and I feel that uh as 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 since I've moved on from playing I've also had a good time of it. So now I've complete belief in my own ability and, and the biggest confidence booster for me or not it's it's Stephen is as came and, and, and brought me into the setup. So I don't need uh Obviously, I hope in time that the players will see the value that I bring and the staff. But um, it's enough for me that Stephen is coming and and and, and taking me into the setup. That that's that's all I need really in terms of uh, having to prove anything to anybody. Uh, just in terms of that that staff and the dynamic, you know, Stephen likes to have I think uh, you know a smaller staff. You know, in terms of heavy divides responsibilities. I mean, between yourself and Keith and and. Damien Duff and I know there's obviously been other sort of backroom things like you know are you Alan having Kelly as well. Yeah, Alan mm-hmm. Kelly, of course. Sorry, are you having uh, like group Zoom chats and calls? Like, is the, what, what way are you interacting at at this stage? And just practical terms to get to know each other better. If you don't, maybe if you haven't spent a huge amount of time with, with one or two of them. Yeah, we're having regular um, Microsoft Teams meetings and and and. Uh, we go into great detail on, 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 what, on what we're talking about, but it's, it's, it's very evident to me from, from day one uh, that, that I feel it's an exciting uh, team that Stephen's put in place and um, the preparation will be meticulous. And, and as you said, Stephen is, always is a small staff and, and there's no crossover. Everyone has their own individual roles and um, he, he, puts, he puts unbelievable trust in, in and people in the roles that he gives them. So just from my short uh, dealings with, with Keith, Damien, Stephen, and, and I've obviously spoken to a lot of the other staff, that, and Alan Kelly, obviously, that I'm really excited by the team that he's put in place and, and hopefully what we can achieve going forward. So like the, I mean, I know you're not going to give specifics to us, of course, because it's internal, but just in broad terms, like the Premier League starts back, the Championship starts back um, next week. Do you know what you're doing? Like, do you know what maybe games you're watching or is it more broad? Like, is there certain areas you're looking at? Like, do you have like a, a plan for that English football restart in terms of your, your role? Yeah, we, we, we'll, uh, at the minute, um, we're discussing other things, but I'm sure over the next, over the next week, we'll all be given our, our we kind of work weekly where Stephen will give us uh, our work to do at the beginning of the week and then whatever. But, um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. We, 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 we will, we will, uh, I'm sure over the coming days, we'll have a, a proper plan in place as the, as the who and, and, and what we're going to watch. And, um, I suppose he, he demands that, um, we give that we analyze everything to the best of our ability and, and, and we bring back the proper information. So, um, well, listen, it's exciting and, and I think it's, it's brilliant for everybody now that the games are coming back. Um, and it's exciting for, for what's ahead. Just as well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to like, the, the players and all this talk of golden generation um, you know, that you might be dealing with, but this is a really exciting management team as well because Damien Duff is obviously very much in his infancy. Uh, Keith Andrews has worked with Stephen with the 21s, doesn't have much coaching experience. You're coming from the League of Ireland. Stephen, in the minds of, in the minds of uh, many people, has a lot to prove. What have you made of them individually so far, the lads that you're dealing with? 
Yeah, excellent. Um, really, really good and impressive. And uh, obviously, I know Stephen inside out. Damien, Damien to me in two thousand and two was probably the best winger in the world, in my opinion. Uh, and the, the, <laughs> I, I remember being in in, uh, in holiday in Spain and watching him and, and being sort of couldn't believe what I was watching. Um, and now to be working, mm. uh, now to be working alongside him, it, it's incredible. Um, and he's done a fantastic job at Celtic. And obviously, from speaking to a few people close to close to the setup at Celtic, uh, the the feedback is that he's an outstanding coach. And and I've been told that from from a lot of different angles. And uh, Keith himself, very articulate, uh, tactically very astute, and, and and knows the game inside out. And obviously. Alan Kelly has done. He's full time uh, coach at Everton as well, so uh, brilliant experience as well. So, listen, it's something that I'm absolutely honoured and privileged to be a part of, and it's something that I want to grab with both hands and make the most of. Keith and Stephen obviously do have a, d- a d- dynamic that works, and obviously without uh, underplaying the other coaches that they work with at, at the twenty ones, Keith and Stephen must at this stage, be deemed a success. And there must be something that makes them take together because it's not like... Stephen Kenny is a bit of an individual, so it's not like he's going to work with every assistant coach. No, and he's very, he's very uh, picky in, in, in who he has around him. And obviously, I know because I, I know people that were close to the under-21 setup. I know that Keith's done a fantastic job and... and um, Stephen really values him, and obviously because he's he's, he's brought him with him to the senior team, and it's something. That, if you look, the, the real uh, the real thing that struck me last year was is probably the football that the under twenty ones played last year was absolutely fantastic, and 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 going toe to toe with Italy and and going out to Sweden. Uh, playing unbelievably well, and then at home to Sweden being one 0 down at half time, and, and and going and, and, and putting them to bed in the second half. It's just, it's, it gives you real optimism. And, and um, that's the type of, of manager Stephen is. He, he, he opens up and he, he's brave and he has a go and he demands that it, it, from 1 to 11 that everyone makes himself available to get on the ball. And I think it's a really exciting chapter now going forward for Irish football. It's 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 that and a lot more. And I think, uh, you know, people felt that watching the 21s. But... Um, you know, the, I suppose one thing with the coronavirus pandemic is that these players have, um, unbeknownst to us, gotten a few months older. These under-21s are edging towards the senior team. How exciting is this bunch of players in general? Not only the players that are in the senior squad already, but the 21s that might make it, the 19s that might make it. And is this the golden generation or are we being premature in terms of talking them up? No, well, I think uh, we don't need to be putting pressure on them. Um, young players, you just let them go and play football. But if you look at the Italy game, uh, if you're putting a price on, on, on the head of some of Italy's players, and then, for example, um, I thought Adam Ida was, was unbelievable that night, and he came up against a centre-half worth 15 to £20 million pound and, and, and really gave him a tough night. Just using him as one example, there's a lot of examples, but it shows that these players are capable of playing, playing at that level and... and um, it's, a, it's, a, it's exciting, but I think it's really, really important that we don't put too much pressure on them. Um, just let them evolve and let them grow as footballers. And, and, and hopefully we'll see that potential uh, coming to the fore in, in the coming years. 
And as well as that, like Jack Charlton's era was, was clearly revolutionary. And Dan and I have been doing plenty on off the ball, looking back at old World Cups and by consequence, looking at old Ireland teams that maybe didn't make it to these tournaments. But what's your take on the way Ireland has been perceived in terms of our football um, culture, our standards, the way that we played over the last 30, 30, 40 years maybe? And um, is it something that you'd like to be part of in terms of changing it? Of course, that's... Uh... And, and and I'm of the same belief as Stephen uh, and Keith and, and Damien and Alan and all the coaching staff that that uh, I don't believe that uh, this is Ireland. Let's get behind the ball. Let's go direct. Um, I feel that we have a lot of really, really good technical players who have given the platform uh, can excel in that environment. And that's... Um, I have no doubt that we have the players and, and, and you obviously see the, the way that the under-21 set up. It, it gives you great hope going forward that uh, we do have the talent coming through, but also we have the talent in the current uh, senior setup, and um, I look forward to being a, a small part of it going forward. I mean, um, really, like, you know, we're all realistic here. We're, you know, we're a League of Ireland podcast. We, you know, we, we want our players to be involved and there have been a 21 level and so on. But, I mean, I, I'm guessing, you know, you're going to spend a lot of time in England um, because that's where, you know, the, the, the players are. But will watching games here be a part of, of your brief as well? I mean, Stephen still lives here. I mean, are you sort of an eyes and ears in terms of the League of Ireland as well? Yes, of course, that's... that's... That's that goes without saying. Um, there's been players capped uh, through through the League of Ireland before, but um, and and it's something that Stevens alluded to before that if we've obviously Europe coming up, um, and hopefully our, our our four teams in Europe can can uh, uh, do really well, and 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 that's a huge thing. If players are, are playing well on that stage, then it gives them an opportunity, and and. Um, it's something that we can't ignore and it's something that we've got to stay on top of Yeah, do you, do you feel that um, the, the, I suppose, do you feel that there is this confidence as well in the younger players that you mentioned this kind of maybe the mentality of Irish players that we're not good enough technically but there does seem to be a belief system maybe from almost 15s up that these players kind of they don't have any fear or maybe they don't have inhibitions that other players have and how good has, has the coaching been at, at underage level uh, in the Irish setups would you say? Well it's a brilliant point I think uh, the coaches right the way through have to be given uh, brilliant and the boys clubs and the clubs that they come from as well it's it's I think there's a new, uh, I think there's a, there, there's a culture change within Irish football from from, from the bottom up, and it's um, it's important if 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 we're going to go forward playing playing a really good brand of football, it has to be that way, and uh, it looks to me like everyone's singing off the same hymn sheet, and, and the coaches the whole way through the the international setup. Like the the job Tom Owen's done springs to mind. Phenomenal, uh, Colin O'Brien. Uh, I know I'm missing a few out. Andy Reid, Jason Donahue, Paul Ozam. Um, they've all done fantastic jobs in, in, in the respective age groups. And um, I think uh, the way 
it looks like we're all we're all singing off the same home sheet and trying to play on that Jess sorry how how much is there an autonomy then of the coach's belief and how much is this Stephen and maybe Rue Dotker looking down and saying we need a philosophy here from 15s up that we can embrace and actually kind of um, inculcate in the players this system because that did that seemed to be quite fractured in the past well, it, 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 I don't know, Johnny. I'm, 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 only, in, I'm only in the job uh, a week or two now, but it, it, it's very evident that, that um, from the top down that they're demanding that, that the teams all play play that way and, and the coaches have embraced it. And um, I think the seedings improve in yearly uh, in the underage groups. And um, it's, it's exciting and... and the, the the exciting thing for me, I love seeing young players develop and and, and seeing their progression, and, and I would love uh, one day to be part of an international setup where we're bringing through players right the way through 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 the age groups, and uh, that would be a sign of massive success. Um. So so now, in terms of I mean, you to go back to your League of Ireland engagement, you're just an observer now. Can we ask you who you think will win? league this year now I mean can you give that question can you answer that question from like an impartial standpoint or are you still sort of uh, very influenced by, by where you've been I know Johnny <laughs> Johnny Johnny's probably called the winners already um, <laughs> five games is about but, right I think isn't it that's, that's the average uh, it's, yeah. not, it's, it's normally at the five game reasons, point yeah. that he calls it um, yeah. so just answer the question but, but, it, but it is strange to leave it like you know because you your plan for the year would have been about Something you know, and now you're 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 going before it's even started, really. You know, I know. Well, to be honest, uh, in terms of 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 the league, I think uh, first and foremost, the top two are have separated away from the rest, in my view, and 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 uh, the you have to give Shamrock Rovers great credit for the squad that they've put together and 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 the style of play that they have and. Um, I think they've done a great job there, but um, for me, if if and I think that if if it's nip and tuck and and uh, there's not a lot in it, come the last four, five, six games of the season, then for me, uh, Dundalk will win it because of the know-how and the experience that they have. Mm. And Vinny as well, obviously he's um, he's lost uh, his assistant, so that that's that he you're going to need to be replaced and. Uh, is is it? It's 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 not obviously ideal for Vinny that he's uh, and the coaching staff that there has been this changeover sort of early on in the season. Uh, I I hear you, but but what I would say is that because of the current situation, there's been there's been a, they've they've been given a lot of time to go and get hopefully the right person. But I have no doubt with with the staff and the group of players at the club that, um, and I'm sure they'll bring in. The right appointment, but I've, I've I've no doubt that they'll kick on and and uh, just because I'm gone, I don't think it'll upset it in any way. Just a, while we're here, then in terms of, I know you're probably you know the Nandalk lads better because you've worked for them. But if I was to say to you at the moment, who who are the young players in the league that excite you? Who springs to mind? Um. Obviously, Bohemians have have done really well in that sense, and, and Danny Mandrew has uh, he's an exceptional talent for me. Um, and then you have Ferruja. It's it's a, it's a difficult question to answer because there's so many. But mm. um, 
in terms of exciting players who can who can get you off off your seat, like you look at the goal Andrew scored last year against Shamrock Rovers with his left foot. That, that that's that's an unbelievable piece of skill, and, and I think that if you see that anywhere in the world, they're showing that goal everywhere. And I think they're the type of things that we need to be getting out around and, and getting on social media ASAP and promoting the game here because there is there is massive talents like that, and, and he, he he's probably the one from. From a creative and, and excitement point of view, I think he, he jumps out at me. So, I mean, before we let you go, are you sure what your schedule is for the rest of the year yet? Because, like, obviously the, the coronavirus situation, I mean, we've had talks of six games, nine games, you know, three in, three in a month, all sorts of scenarios. I know you wait for another big meeting next week and there's talks this week. I mean, do you know for sure even what your what your schedule is when the playoff is? No, we, we, we don't know for sure as it stands, but we have to plan. Um, we have to have all our ducks in a row and we have to have all our preparation work done. And um, It's like everyone else. It's all up in the air at the minute. And, and, and until we're given official confirmation, then we can we can properly deal with it. But uh, we just have to prepare that, that there's going to be a lot of games and, and the Nations League games are coming up and it won't be long until they come in. Um, you're talking, what, 3rd, 3rd and 6th of September, I think. Uh, and that won't be long coming in. Um, but listen, we're just preparing accordingly and, and if, once we're told any different, then that'll be it. But uh, we've got our work to do now in the coming months and, and, and we'll, we'll focus on that. Just, just, just one other question for me, Rory. Really, what are your managerial ambitions? Because I, I, I imagine you didn't envisage that you'd be back in a role of opposition analysis at this stage, even in the Ireland setup. Um, I wouldn't mind getting started in this job, Johnny. First, if you mm. don't mind. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I, I've, I'm currently just starting, starting my pro license, and I've been enrolled in that course, and it's something that I'm looking forward to. But I genuinely have, have, have no interest in even thinking about it at the minute. It's, it's, if it, I will be in a position down the line if it comes around, but I've, I've been given an amazing opportunity by Stephen and the FEI, and, and, and it's something that I want to uh, make the most of. And It would be amazing to be part of um, a successful uh, period in Irish football. And, and, and with the amount of games coming up in the next year or two, with suppose that the qualifiers hopefully the championships um that's the ambition and then you've got uh, the nations league and the world cup qualifiers all in all in a short period of time so i, I just want to get stuck into that i want to uh, enjoy the experience and make the most of the experience and if that comes down the line at some point uh, well and good but uh, I've no interest in even thinking about it at the moment. Just to extrapolate on that a little bit then, and this is a first cousin of what Dan asked. I know we've a bit of time pressure here, but what is the standard of young coaches in the League of Ireland? Because it does seem to be a particularly kind of intriguing time for coaches who are doing their badges uh, from the underage systems up. There's a lot of kind of, there are a lot of jobs out there. And you look at the likes of yourself, Alan Reynolds, Tim Clancy, Stephen O'Donnell, young coaches coming through. I think it's, it's a... There's a lot of uh, really um, astute people in the game in, in the league, and like I know, for example, Tim Clancy has has been working off a really small budget and the job that he's done, and 
I think he's done a fantastic job of Drada and it wouldn't surprise me if he moved on and, and Drada won't like me saying that but it wouldn't surprise me if, if, if there were people uh, asking about his services at, at some point in the future and, and obviously Stephen O'Donnell um, has we all know how, how clever he is on the game and, and and Stephen Bradley, another one, and, and obviously Alan Reynolds, I think, has done a fantastic job at Waterford as well, and, and people like that. The, the standard in this country, is, as you said, I think is, is very, very high, and, and given the opportunity, I think these individuals can, can really kick on, and there's more, there's more than that, but they're just ones that spring to mind, and um, I think that given the platform and the opportunity, they can have really uh, top career in the game. That's thanks, Will. You've you've alienated people at Dundalk and Drogheda there over the course of this interview. So that's that's great. But listen, we're really excited, uh, obviously, about what's going to happen, and uh, also must express our thanks for giving us this interview as well. No problem. Thank you. Thanks, Rory. See ya. Thanks. Bye bye. Thanks to uh, Rory for that. Earlier in the week, we did uh, speak to Parik Ammon. Now, there have been developments since then. then this was Monday, Dan, and obviously the EFL situation is pretty fast moving over there. Well, yeah, there's just a, it's confirmed that the season in uh, League One and League Two is, is over, and you know, Newport weren't going to be uh, dramatically affected by the situation. So, um, yeah, no, we, we spoke to Parik earlier in the week to discuss. Uh, yeah, his career in England, his career in well Wales, where he is at the moment, and also his, his career in the League of Ireland as well. Parry Cammond, how are you keeping? Not too bad, yourself? All good, you're, you're going off to play golf? Yeah, trying to get a bit of normality back into life. Now, um, trying to play as much golf as I can before uh, the new arrival comes yeah. in. And Maybe on the way. Maybe on the way, yeah, so I don't need to be much golf played for a little bit after that, so we've come to a, an agreement, myself and my missus, that play a bit of golf now but then the clubs are being hung up for a little while after and uh, this is your first baby is it? first child yeah so yeah. really excited game Nervous. changer yeah. Yeah. game changer yeah yeah. I can well imagine and um, yeah so it's, it's, uh, it's obviously an exciting time for you what's it been like football wise for the last while not very inspiring I suppose yeah it's, it's obviously crazy times at the minute um, and it's just a, we, we've just I've never had a break this long in football mm. Um and obviously it looks like the break could be for another couple of months as well. Um, so it is, it is really unusual. It's, I suppose it's nice to be able to recharge the batteries as well. But at the same time, you don't want to be sitting recharging them for too long because you want to just get back out. I, I probably haven't kicked the football since mid-March. Wow. Um, and that's, that's quite a long time as well, you know, because everything else was being closed down over here. Um, you know, if local pitches and stuff. Um, so they're only reopening up. The last the last week or two, so just trying to get back into a little bit of normality now, and and just really look forward to when the football does restart. And I know it will be very very different, but I think you know everyone is desperate to get back started again, um, be it whatever level they're playing at, because I think this you kind of realise how much you miss it all. Um, you know, and, and I suppose in a, in, a, in a way, a lot of the younger fellas they should be you know looking at football now and thinking. Jesus, this, that's what life without football is like. So they should be doing everything they can to prolong their careers as long as possible and give themselves the best opportunity, which I don't think some of the younger fellas probably don't do at the minute. They kind of go with the flow. Whereas the older ones like myself who, you know, I don't want to say coming towards the end of my career because I still, I still feel I can play for another five, six years easily. Um, but I just want to make sure that goes on for as long as possible. 
it's just unusual times completely. Well, what was it like as a Newport player? What was it like for players at that level in general? Because I suppose when football was called off, people didn't know how long this was going to go on for. And how was it kind of the interaction with your teammates been in terms of not knowing really what was going to happen? Well, initially, obviously, when, when everything got shut down, um, myself and my wife, we're both from Carlo, and we looked at going home. But, you know, we didn't. We decided not to just in case football did restart quite soon and we couldn't get back into the country or, or whatever happened. So, obviously, we, we, haven't, we haven't done that. She, obviously, being pregnant, had stuff over here with, with uh, appointments and all that as well. But, you know, with, with the lads, we, I, I'll be honest with you, initially I thought I was a little bit blasé about it. I thought it would be maybe a month of a break and then straight back in. And I thought it would go quicker than what, what it has. Um, a lot of the lads were probably of a similar mindset um, just because I suppose we've never seen anything like this before and, and you've tried to think the most positive out of it but it, it has been a very unusual time like we're chatting always in the group chat all stuff like that we've got training programs that were sent out early to us but obviously they, they've had to be stopped because we're, we're all on furlough now so technically we're, we're not to be working and the club is not to be sending us out stuff but we're not stupid as players. We know ourselves that we know what to do. We've been around a, a, enough of the time and long enough time uh, for pre-seasons and just to make sure that you keep taking over and do everything possible to to kind of give yourself the best chance of, of restarting the new season whenever it does. Yeah, I mean, what's the climate like in the, in the lower leagues? Because I've spoken to a couple of people during the the lockdown, as you call it, you know, I spoke to Adam Rooney at various stages who's, who's gone down non-league and Conor O'Malley who's coming home and the, everyone I've, I've spoken to who's sort of involved in football at that level, Stephen Quinn was another, like they're just talking about how in their WhatsApp groups or just chats, they're aware of people that are worried. And thankfully, you know, you, you, you know you're, you're well regarded at the club that you're, you're at at the moment and that's, that's a very good position to be in. But for people that are maybe... Having, have had a bad season coming towards the end of their contract, whatever it might be. Um, it's a pretty stressful time because there's, there's big question marks over what's going to happen in the, in the lower leagues and what impact whatever happens will have on budgets and everything going forward. Completely. Um, I think we're in a very unique position with, I think 95% of our squad are actually still in contract. Mm. Or, or high, 90%. There's, there's a lot of players... You know, whereas I, I know of in other groups, group chats and, and clubs have been chatting, speaking to other players as well. They have a lot of players who are out of contract, so they don't know what's happening. I think there's only four players out of contract in our squad. The rest of them are all in contract for the next season. And I'm, thankfully for myself, I signed a new one before in November time. So I have another year after this as well. But it, it is going to change football. Um, for Definitely for the, for the short-term future anyway. It's going to be... I suppose where it was a, a players' market before, where they could demand certain things. Now the clubs are going to take all the control for a couple of years, I think at least, and players are going to have no choice but to accept certain contracts if they want to stay involved in football, if that's what they want to do. Um, and it is going to be look, it's going to be crazy to to see what happens. They're talking about bringing the salary cap in now as well, which is probably a good thing, um, because I think some of the money that was being thrown around at lower levels is is crazy. Obviously, Salford will be the, the, the big the big ones, but in fairness to Salford, they can back it up. Where and you know they have they have six people involved 
you know, five Man United, ex-Man United players who are all multi-millionaires and the other person is a, a billionaire nearly. So, you know, they're not exactly struggling. So they can back up, but there's other clubs then who are probably chasing the dream um, and that's going to affect them, I think, in the longer term. And even the lower, like, so the salary cap they're talking about is not going to affect non-league clubs. But the problem is when non-league clubs get promoted to the football league, then they're going to be straight away affected by the salary cap. So is it worth them to take a bigger risk to try to get into the league if they're going to end up having to, you know, cut the budget in half when they get promoted um, and lose lose a lot of players? So it is going to be a, an interesting kind of two, three-year period to see what happens. There probably will be clubs that go in this period as well, um, which no one wants to see. But, you know, the other side of it as well is, I think you're going to see clubs that are going to be run a lot better in, in the longer term um, and probably a more sustainable league is going to come out of it. Um, especially, like, you know, I suppose the one thing English football does have over the majority of, of world football is the professional leagues down as far as, you know, the fifth, sixth tier. Um, and there's a hundred, a hundred odd prof- fully professional teams in the country, whereas you go to any other country and you, you're probably lucky if you hit if you hit 30, 30 teams, you know, depending on how far down the levels you go. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting point that, and like, I mean, we're sort of a, obviously we're a League of Ireland podcast and um, I think I've spoken to you about this before and you speak to people that maybe, I think they talk about levels and I, I, I hate that debate anyway because like the, the League of Ireland is such a mishmash of levels anyway, it's very hard to, to, to even put a, put a, a sort of an umbrella over it. But I think, what people don't grasp even in and you've been down in the in the conference or the national league as it is now the amount of money that clubs at that level are still prepared to spend and it's very interesting you mentioned that with the salary cap that sometimes people say well why don't players come home why would they why would they go and play there not realizing that there's actually massive operations with proper budgets in like the fifth tier of english football which are probably offering more than anyone bar one or two could even offer at home yeah I think the big thing for me was it's not the it's not the fact that they're offering more money or anything like that. It's, it's the fact that it's a fully it's still a fully professional setup. You mm. go back to Ireland at the minute. There's probably three or four clubs you could join and be a be a full time professional. If it doesn't go right, if say if I went back to Dundalk or Shamrock Rovers, whatever whatever club I went back to, and it didn't work out there, your options are very limited. So you're going you could be going on a one year deal and then a year later you're a part time footballer. Yeah. Whereas over over in England, you know, you've you've got that, you know, I've been lucky enough now since I started, the since I turned eighteen, I've I've played football all my career, and um, obviously it was, ba- well, nearly nearly full time, in um in Shamrock Rovers at the beginning because it was three four times a week, you know, but it was all in the evening. But I was happy to do that because I was a young lad, um, mm. and I was just delighted to be involved, um. You know, so it's just there. There's just more sustainability over in in um in the UK, and and you know, without being horrible or anything like that, there was never an issue of a club going to go bust mid-season. You know, like what what happened for a few teams in in Ireland with the Sport and Fingal, the Dublin City, yeah. um, and Cork City to an extent. How how much it it kind of went, you know, bang bang up down there. Really, um, it was it was crazy you know and the money that was being spent around there at the time at those clubs was was 
probably on a par with what was going on over in England at the lower leagues. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that's the point. I, I spoke to a young player, I won't say who it was last year, but he was at a club in England who, like he's in his early 20s. And, and the reason he didn't want to come home is almost what you said there, that it's almost a, a feeling that if I don't do well, I'm in trouble. It's actually, to come home, you need to have, for some of them, like you see, Jack Byrne has met at work. I mean, he's met at work extremely well for himself. But if Jack had struggled at Rovers, he's in danger of being out of the game. And that is the, the fear, isn't it? It's that you're out of sight of the industry as such. The Jack, the Jack Byrne one was, was probably, is probably the best case of it. But the other side of that with the Jack Byrne one, he probably hadn't got many other options across in the UK at the time because, you know, the war question marks about whether it was right or wrong about attitude and about whether he, you know... And the problem is he probably too good to be playing football at a certain level because the game will bypass it. Yeah. So, you know, that's where Jack's gone home and he's in. He's at a, a comfort zone. At the, I don't mean comfort zone is the wrong word. I mean, he's at home. He's, he's, you know, he can tell he's a home bird as well that he loves being around his friends and family uh, and he plays his best football when, when that's the case. And he's been unbelievable for over since he's gone back and I've had the pleasure of watching him play a few times and I've gone to see Rovers play and, He's just a genius with a football. And I've I've known about Jack for a long, long time. Um, you know, when when I was at when I was at Morecambe and Atkinson, um I was uh, living in Manchester and we used to um we shared it Bar- Graham Barrett was my agent at the time and mm. Graham would always tell me about Jack. He'd be telling us like about this talented player he had, like and you know, he just needed to, needed to almost quieten him down, but but it was he just he was just such a good, good, talented player that, you know, I was surprised he didn't make it over here as such, but I fully expect him to end up probably coming back over here eventually and, you know, being a standout player on whatever team and whatever level he wants to play at because he has every bit of ability in the world that, that you could wish for growing up like. The two of you have something in common um, in that you, you played in, in non-English leagues in Europe, which is very unusual for um, not only a League of Ireland player, but an Irish player. And is it something then maybe that that Jack um, might be more suited to um, a league that isn't England, effectively as well. I think I think so. Yeah, I, I I have this conversation with my friends all the time, and you talk about in, you know growing up, England is the be all and end all for a lot of people. Whereas I I disagree with that because the amount of Irish players who would have been more suited to go play on the continent is is scary. I I tried to get Richie Ryan over to to Portugal as well. Classic mm, uh, example. I, yeah, yeah. I I spoke to the sporting director two or three days after we signed. I signed, and the deadline had closed. And I said, "You need to go back in January and get him because he would be tailor made for the style of football you want to play over here." And there was a couple of conversations, but it just obviously didn't didn't work out. But Richie is a player, and and again, there's there's players who are, you know, dotted around Ireland who, you know, might have had a good career elsewhere or mightn't have had a, a career at all, but they would have been suited more to playing in. In, in Spain or Portugal or Italy and the team probably would have been built around them rather than the game bypassing them in midfield um, which is what can happen you know I know Richie spoke about it when he went to Boston um, with Steve Evans and he said the ball was just he got a pain in his neck looking at it going over and back and he never got a chance to get the ball down and play and I think that's probably again why you see so many players from the from Premier League academies when they drop down the leagues why they struggle because they just they're they're almost too good a footballer for the level they're going down to, but they can't they can't mix and match it, and it just it's all it has to be pretty football is what they play, um, 
but yeah, no, I, I, I think definitely Jack is one of those players who, who could be really suited to playing, you know, at a really high level on the continent. And again, that would make him, you know, would it it'd improve him so much more as well, and improve, I suppose, the 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 style of football that he'd be playing, and 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 probably his international ambitions as well, because with Stephen going in there, the way Stephen wants to play football, is probably suited to a lot of the, the younger boys who might end up going across across the play um in a in a Spain or in an Italy or France or somewhere like that. Would would you recommend it yourself having been in Portugal? Hundred percent, yeah. Hundred percent. It's if look, worst case scenario it doesn't work out, you go back. You know what I mean? It's it's just I think when I moved over to Portugal there was only four four Irish players before or five players who played in Portugal before me. Um and it was it's an unbelievable experience. The the standard of football you know, is a lot higher than what people actually give give credit for. Even at the lower the lower teams, um, everyone tries to play football. Um, the reason you see probably high scoring results when Benfica and Porto come is not because they're so much better than you. It's because everyone is almost. We go to play Porto and Benfica, and we think right, we can outplay these. Hmm. And that's the, that's the that's the you're trying to play them at their own game because that's your style of football. You're not gonna say right, we'll we'll play four five one today. We'll we'll sit back in. We'll invite pressure. We'll try catch them on the break. It was it's not that case. It's like right here's their weaknesses. This is our strengths. Let's go beat them. Um, and it worked a couple of times. Um, when we when we played those teams, um, we beat Sport Lisbon three times over there last season and Braga twice and and drew with Porto as well. So. It wasn't wasn't like they're they're doing the wrong thing, you know. They they believe in their ability and and the coaches believe in the ability of the players, and that's that's why they they go with that attitude. I think that's a, I tell you those those teams and descriptions and scenarios you're you're describing there, Barry. Uh, they're they're a long way from Carlo. I think when you were starting off in your career, thinking about uh, facing the, the nuances of 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 taking on Sporting Lisbon or Benfica. But we we were just speaking before we we came on air, and you're playing golf today. And you're you're there early. You like to be there on time. And I just said to you, I mean, is that a bit of the Pat Scully legacy that that years later you're still you're still a stickler for timekeeping? But you're saying that that, that that's actually true. This is the Pat Scully yeah. effect. Yeah, like I was always, I suppose, look, growing up first and foremost with my mum and dad, it was kind of like if someone don't don't leave someone hanging on waiting if they've agreed to meet someone at a certain time, you know, don't. It's a bit disrespectful towards them. So. You know, be good with your timekeeping, everything like that. Don't be late for school, work, whatever you're doing, whatever it might be. So, I've always been at that. But when I when I signed for Rovers and Pat, my Pat was brilliant with me. Like I have to say, he was just, you know, I understand people, you know, have different opinions and whatever. But if it wasn't for Pat Scully and Dave Campbell, who was the 21s manager at the time, if it wasn't for the two of them, I probably wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation with you, or I might have. I might have had a very different route to try have this conversation with you, but the two of them gave me an opportunity, believed in my ability, and and Pat was always fantastic with me. He was brilliant with my parents as well. When they were after games, he'd always, you know, he'd always stop and have a chat with them. And other people used to look and be shocked that he was stopping to have a chat with 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 uh, anybody. I think, um, but he he would always make time, say hello to my mum and dad, and 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 always make sure that everything that I needed. Um, if because I was travelling up from from uh, Carlo for the majority of the time, um, and he always made sure that there was there was no problems, and even down to, you know, we we get we'll get to it probably eventually. But the bus incident, um, I I met them 
outside my house. They picked me up on the way to Waterford because they had to go through Carlow. Um, and when they went past the Royal Oak, I, I, we were living at the Royal Oak um, in Bagnestown and the, the bus picked me up at my house. Like, but, but if you had said, if someone told you Pat Scully would let someone get on the bus there, or whether, like, I, I see clubs in, in England and I, you drive an hour to meet the bus, even if the bus is passing your house, mm. or regardless. But he was always brilliant with stuff like that with me. And, you know, I'll, I'll be forever grateful for, for everything he'd done for me at the beginning of my career. It sort of sounds like you, you were his favourite then, really, to be honest. I mean, this, is, this, this, must, this allegation <laughs> must be thrown your way at times, you know? Um, I, I don't know. I don't know whether it was his favourite or not, but... Um, he liked me anyway. That was a that was a good start. Um, you know, I think he I think he had a lot of, you know, to be fair, I I, I listened to Dyler speak on on the, Owen Dyle speak on the, on this podcast before, and he really he did really like Dyler as well. Um, so maybe it was just, you know, the younger players that were coming up through the academy or coming up through the system that that Dave had had before. So Dave Campbell and obviously Pat were were really good friends and and they worked really well together. But they're even though they might seem different, they're quite similar with their with the way training goes and and the, you know their their morals and their values of of you know what way football should be and and the way you should conduct yourself type thing. Um, so once you kind of pass the test with Dave, I think that was good enough for Pat, mm. knowing that you know you're not coming up and you're not the the wrong kind of. You know, it's only when I look back now I realise that the first test was Dave. Once you pass that, you kind of Pat was, don't get me wrong, I was afraid of my life at times. But because I didn't want to, I didn't want to let him down. I didn't want to, you know, be the one to, to, you know, do the wrong thing for the team. Or And I suppose that's where kind of I've become such a, a team player because, you know, it wasn't all about being the best player on the pitch, but it was about doing the right things for the team at the right time. And if it, if it meant, you know, making an extra run, to help out a teammate, that was that was what was the most important thing for us. You were like seriously fit as well, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, we were. Yeah, we always we were always um, we were always very fit. Yeah, um, we we scored quite a lot of late goals the year we won the first division. Now I missed pre I didn't do pre season that season with them. I made my debut in the second game of the season um, away to Athlone. Um, and you know, so I didn't, I didn't see what the running was like in pre-season there. But I know the next pre-season, it was, it was tough. It was, um, it was really, really tough. I, I, saw, I, I actually, was it that season? No, it was the following season. Yeah, so I done pre-season the following season, and the, the next year when I tore my cruciate, and I missed the pre-season. So I saw all the running the lads were doing, and it was, um, it was basically the base for how how the season was going to go. Their fitness levels was was unbelievable, and. As I said, yeah, it's probably one of the reasons we got promoted in out of the first division because we we ran over teams late on, or we scored a lot of late goals, and we could keep going for a lot longer. But I suppose us training almost professionally at the time probably did stand to us. Whereas you know it was a part-time team in a part-time league, but we didn't see ourselves as that. We never used that as an excuse. So anyway, listen. I mean, people who listen to this podcast generally have listened to all our shows, but just to refresh their memory, if they missed Owen Doyle's one, this was the bus going to a game in Waterford, and by the time you got on the bus, I think some people had gone off it. <laughs> can, you, can you can you just clarify what had happened here? No, again, and and honestly, and I genuinely mean this. To this day, I still don't know what happened because I obviously wasn't on the bus initially. So 
I was getting on in Carlo, and I remember um, Eric McGill sent me a text message. He said, um, we're about five minutes away from where you are. When you get on the bus, don't say anything. Sit in beside me. I'll, I'll tell you later. <laughs> 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 so I've gone onto the bus, and usually, you know, you're traveling to a game, and the bus is quite lively. I've never got onto as quite a bus in my life. And I didn't know what was after happening. I said hello to everyone, shook, shook hands with with. Pat obviously getting on the bus and you know like it was like nothing was after happening to him he was you know having a little bit of laughing and joking with me and I kind of going I didn't know what to do um <laughs> sat down beside Eric didn't know my mouth till we got to to Waterford um and I think that was the that was Dyler's debut as well so he just I would know where started the game I started the game um there was a couple of players missing by the time we got Buzzer there. Buzzer was yeah. missing, was he? Was Buzzer, Buzzer, Robbie Clark and Derek Pender, I think. Um, Buzzer had a setback pre-game. <laughs> yes, yeah, he did, yeah. I think that was the team news Buzzer, bulletin, yeah. yeah. Buzzer, Buzzer, um, Buzzer Injured in transit. Every, every time, every time I, I, I kind of do well or, or every time, you know, something good happened, especially with the FA Cup run last year, Buzzer used to send a tweet to me saying, you're, uh, what is it, basically saying, I made your career by being thrown off that bus. <laughs> so, uh, so I do have to thank Buzzer for that. He did. He, he played a big part in, in my career taking off as it was by him getting thrown off the bus. But he made his it way was, back into the spot afterwards. Yeah. Oh I, 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 mean, I assume for all that, that Pat Scully was fond of you, though, there, there were one or two days where... And, I, and, I, and I'm, I'm conscious we're not just caricaturing him as something because he obviously was a good manager and, like, you know, he, his, his results show it. But... I assume there was the odd day where he went through you as well. Yeah, um, th- th- there was like, but again, um, I, I was I was sitting there. I, I remember, I never the one of the one of the funniest things I've ever seen was. Remember, I won't name the player, but I remember before a game, players used to get strappings, and we'd be in Talker Park. We'd be sitting up, and players would be getting strappings before. But some players used to get them before the squad was announced, before the team was announced. And they're sitting on the physio bed and you used to get called in one by one if you weren't playing. So you knew if, if you're sitting in the dressing room and he'd be in the office, the next minute someone comes in and he, you're called in, you're I'm either in the team. If you're, in, if you're out of the team, you're in the team. If you're in the team, you're out of the team. Put mm. it that way. So anyway, he came in and named the squad and someone was after getting a strap on their ankle. And next minute the player wasn't even in the squad. So the awkwardness of someone having this cut, a strap on off their ankle in front of everyone and get changed back into their gear because they were sitting with the shorts. And from that day on, no one ever got a strapping before a game or no one ever got a rub before a game. Everyone was sitting in the tracksuit when the team came in or when the team was being announced, just in case. That's you know, uh, proper scarlet stuff. I'm just going to yeah. guess it was Buzzer anyway. I mean, maybe it no, wasn't. No, but we're wasn't. Put... It, wasn't. it wasn't, to be fair. But, but like, with, with Pat, like, I was just... I was just more afraid of letting him down, to be honest with you. Again, like, I go back to saying that he gave me an opportunity and I didn't want to let him down. Um, and I wanted to do whatever I could. There was times, obviously, he, you know give out about players or I don't remember I actually genuinely don't remember a, an occasion where he, he came for me massively um, there might have been there was one there was one incident where he spoke to me afterwards and we played Galway away from or we played Galway at home but it was just after the break um, mid-season break and I'd met a few of the Galway lads away on on, on um, a holiday in, in Spain and we had a good few drinks together and whatever but I chased down the ball from the keeper and the keeper cleared it and hit me in the side of the head and knocked me out. 
and I got straight back up about about five seconds there and I felt yeah fine no problem and Pat was asking me he knew something wrong was wrong but I was like no no I'm okay I'm okay and I stood five yards away from on the touchline saying yeah I'm fine I know exactly where I am blah blah, blah. a Galway player dribbled past me that went through and scored and, I, and then he said no you need to come off so a couple of days later he spoke to me and he was just like look you need to I know you're not, you, you want to stay on the pitch because you, you, you want to you know, not let me down or whatever, but you've done the opposite there. You need to, if you're not right, you need to, if you're, if you're injured or you're struggling, you need to come off um, and do the right thing for the team. And that was probably the, the worst, like the worst bit of Pat done to me. Have, uh, he could have been could a lot have hammered worse than that. Have yeah, that's a probably, yeah. The fact we won the game 3-1 helped. Uh, uh, we saw, yeah. sorry Dan, we saw... It's obviously the death of uh, Big Deck, the Shamrock Rovers fan at the weekend. Yeah. And it just got me thinking about how you would remember him as well, Podge, that he, he would have come through all these phases of Shamrock Rovers, the good and the bad and various ground hopping. But that Pat Scully era when Big Deck was going to grounds like Terryland and so on was a real sort of, um, I suppose, getting the, getting the club back on, a, on, a, on an even footing and look at the strength that it kind of came to out of that with the managers that joined and Pat Scully's legacy like would seem to be a very very uh, favourable one in terms of his Rovers career yeah completely look um, Pat was probably the only manager that, that probably could have done what he'd done that season um, with, with Shamrock Rovers if I'm being completely honest um, you know you could have put anyone else in but he needed there was a big turnaround the players and I understand you know I, I was my first year in football and you know I think I 37 teammates that season but mm. it was needed because players had come in players were happy to go into Shamrock Rovers but then he'd have to turn them over very quickly if they weren't buying into everything that he, he wanted mm. them to do he was probably getting players that would never have wanted to play in the, the first division but then also he got players that you know for instance Paul Shields came in from who was at Monaghan United and you know, Shields, he probably played the majority of his season or career in the first division, maybe a couple of seasons in the but he was a proper first division player that you needed. You know, they're the, they're the type of players you needed to get you out of the league. The core group he had was kind of Aidan Price, Gerald Bryan, Barry Murphy, Ty Purcell. They were all with him previously, apart from Barry, I think. Um, and they ended up like being brilliant first division signings, but also brilliant Premier Division players as well. And I think that was his, that was one of his, his things he was really, really good at. Was you know, even though the turnover of players was high, the amount of players or the legacy he left with regards all those players had long careers in the League of Ireland. You know, they were they were they all bought into the way he went about football. They wanted to be successful. You know, Aidan Price was probably the best pro I've ever seen in my life. Mm. And again, you know, whether it was, you know, Pat instilling that into you, but Aidan as a captain, he was the one that was driving it into you as well. Um, and to make sure that the, it was all reinforced. But again, I go back to saying it, Pat was probably the only manager who could have done what he'd done that season with the pressure that was on the club because the club needed to get out of that league. Um, First of all, they needed to go into it to restart everything and restart the whole club, um, the structure of it. But now you look where the club is now. If it wasn't for Pat Scully, I think the club would have took a an, serious an knockback and it would have took a number of years for the club to actually get into the Premier League again and to be put back on the, 
on the kind of pedestal that the club deserves to be on or the, the, the history of the club doesn't show that it deserves to be on. I, supp- I suppose, um, Parag, like there's a funny parallel between yourself and Owen Doyle because um, you both probably have a, an affection for, for Shamrock Rovers. I mean, you were there from the age of 10. He sort of grew up or, he, you know, he's a Tala boy. So when they moved there, it was a big deal. And yet, you both had to go to Sligo Rovers, actually, to, to bring your career to the next level. For, you know, the, yeah. and, and you've both done that and you've both made good careers for yourself. But, I mean, Sligo Rovers was essential. To whatever happened. Yeah. I mean, what was it about Sligo Rovers that worked for you? I don't know, but even the thing with Owen, like, I, I played with Owen at four different stages in my career. So when I was, when we were 14, he played with Shamrock Rovers with me. When we were 16, then he left. When he was 16, I went to Crumlin United and he was there. We played together there. Then we we're back playing with Rovers again and then to Sligo. So it was like we were following each other, but that it wasn't. But it wasn't, it wasn't the case of, like there was one stage, that Crumlin team, there was, there was Owen, myself, and Adam Rooney were the three uh, forward players. Almost, almost yeah. shifted to the wing, kind of. And that's where he kind of, because he was always a winger growing up, but he always wanted to be a striker, but he just never got the opportunity until he, he did. And then he took off. But the Sligo thing, I think it was just, I remember ringing him when I was interested in speaking to, or going to Sligo. Um, Cookie wanted to sign me. And he said, I remember him said to me after we played, Played them in Talker Park. I was walking out the ground with my mum and dad, and they said to me, "I'm going to sign you just so you can't score against me because I'm fed up every time we play against you. You score." So that was a laugh and a joke, and I didn't play it too much in the, my last season with Rovers. I played, you know, I was in and out, but it's more so the fact that Desi Baker and Gary Twig had the probably one of the best partnerships going in in recent history in the League of Ireland. And, and no matter what I'd done, I couldn't get into the team. Even if I played well and scored, I was still out the following week. Um, you know, but went to Sligo um after turning down a new deal at Rovers. But I went there on the on the recommendation or on the, the the kind of after having a conversation with Dyler and he basically was like, Look, you you will love it here. The gaffer will make you think you're the best player in the world going out into the pitch, you'll play to your strengths. You know, we've a close knit group over there and every word he said to me was was completely true. It was just a great career move for myself. Um, and look, I suppose it worked out well for the, for the Sligo as well because it, it started the ball kind of really rolling with the players. Cookie was after signing over there and obviously it's accumulated in and then winning trophies over there just after I left. Uh, yeah, obviously Mick O'Neill went on to manage Northern Ireland. Stephen Kenny went on, ex, another ex-Shamrock uh, Rose manager has gone on to manage Ireland. But Cookie's done extremely well in England. And uh, did that surprise you or had he that some special quality about him in terms of his man management and so on? His man management was brilliant. He just, he had something, you know, I, I, he didn't really like coaching. But he had good people around him who could coach um, and, and liked doing it. And I think that's probably one of the key things that... You know, I've learned definitely from from doing coaching badges and stuff like that is if you're a good coach, there's no point getting someone in with you who's a good coach. You need someone who's with you as a good good man manager. There's no point you all being able to do the same thing. Um, Taylor and so on. Yeah, you need you need the right right kind of balance around you. And to give you an insight of what Cookie was like, um, I remember there was one stage where I was, you know, I was on a really really hot streak at the at the time. But Matthew Blinkhorn was out injured, so I was the only striker available at the club and I think we were due to play on the Saturday night and we tra- turned up the train on Thursday morning and I turned up the train and basically Cookie said to me you're not training today and I was like what do you mean I'm not training today? 
It's like, I, I need to train. He said, no, no, I can't afford. Can't afford for you to train. And I'm going, what, what, what do you want me to do? And he goes, have you got your golf clubs? I said, yeah, they're in the park. And we trained in Strand Hill, which was 100 yards away from Strand Hill Golf Club. And he said to me, all right, he said, go across there, I'll be over to you in 20 minutes. <laughs> he, went in, he went in, spoke to Jerry Carr, Alan Moore, uh, and the rest of his coach and staff. Uh, got them set up for the rest of it and said, look, I need to take him over here to keep him away from training because I can't afford for him to get injured. Basically, one, because I was playing so well and scoring so many goals but two because we hadn't got another striker available mm. um, and then basically we went and played golf um, <laughs> on, the Saturday, on the on the Thursday and I went out on the Saturday I was like well I, I can't let him down now if he's up there and I scored a hat-trick on the Saturday and it, little things like that like if, if a manager gives you that little bit of leeway some people will take the biscuit with, with it and, and, and go yeah. too far but I was always one of these, if a manager is doing something good for me, right, if I have to run through a brick wall for him on a Saturday or do something else to, you know, to keep that trust. Because the other side of it is, I wanted to play golf the following week as well. You know, so, <laughs> so it was just... And there was, um, did you ever do a food the, shop? Like, like just about, were you ever involved in a food shop with, uh, with, with Gucky or invited for a, a, a midweek point with him, a la Doyle and Blinkhorn and the rest of them? Yeah, so what we all lived, we all lived in the kind of the same, the same thing. I was with John Dillon, um, and Moral Beda, and uh, Gary, Gary, McCabe, Derek Ford were in a house beside us. And then across the road was Blinks, Keno, Dyler, and, and Cookie was next door. So we used to go over and watch the football. I remember the first time I'd done it, we went over to watch the football in Dyler's house because. They, they had obviously we hadn't got Sky in at the time and that and went up to watch it the next minute all of a sudden the, the, the manager was bowling in I was like oh, what's going on here like um, <laughs> uh, Pat Scully wouldn't have done that but that way um, um, I believe that your, your, your team morale was so good as well that it was apt to like, let him finish his story John let him finish his story so, sorry so <laughs> Right. There, there, there was the 50 quid pizza order as well that, um, that you, there was a bit of a surprise when it landed at your door was there yeah, there was there was a few different ones. So you'd get you'd get um you'd get a knock on the door. There might be a, like late at night. There might be a bin coming towards someone's door. Or there was really good. Like the, the the nightlife was brilliant, but we were very good on the pitch as well, and we enjoyed it all. But it was kind of there was there was different things. You never knew what was going to turn up somewhere, anywhere. It could have been at anyone's house. It could have been Derek or I remember Derek and Gary McCabe turned up like they were ahead of their time because they were dressed like the Peaky Blinders for the first game of the season with their, with their suits on and, and we're going, oh, what are these lads like? And But that was just the camaraderie we had. Like, you know, we were, we were trusted. We were, we were definitely trusted by the manager. So, like, if we played on a Saturday, you could go for a drink of a Sunday, but one six, we could watch the football. We could go up to the local pub, watch the football. But one six o'clock was done. That was it. If you went into town after six o'clock, or you go home at six o'clock, if you were seen going into town or that, you you were fine two weeks wages type thing. So the trust was there that we could enjoy ourselves, we could still have a drink, we could still um, kind of bond together, and I think that is probably what made the the club so successful in in the the, the time afterwards was the bond the players all had. Um, obviously, I was only there for six months um, or seven months which was a short time, but there was lads who were there for, like Gavin Pears was there for quite a long time, seven, eight years. Other lads were there four or five years. Um, 
but every, every player was willing to fight for the, their teammate, no matter what it was. And <laughs> sometimes it did happen. They ended up fighting for the teammates, but um, that's a difference. That's that's a different part altogether. Um, but the, the, the camaraderie was brilliant, and and again, that's something that probably Cookie's brought everywhere with him. Because um, if you have happy players, you'll end up having a having a happy squad, and and um, you know you can be successful off the back of it as well. Um, I mean, you, you, and you've gone on to make it like a very successful career for yourself, and you've had some great experiences with Newport and so on. I'm sure you're asked this all the time by family and friends and whatever. Do you see yourself coming home? I know you've gone down the coaching route now, and, and you've spoken about the opportunities that exist in England. I mean, where do you see your future now? I don't know, to be honest with you. I, I think, I think everyone's futures are very, very much up in the air at the minute. I'm, as I said to you at the beginning, I'm lucky that I've got two more years on my contract here. Mm. Um, but I suppose now you don't really know what's going to what's going to come after that. I do want to go into coaching. I do want to go into management. Um, I don't know yet what way it's going to be. Sometimes you fall into the right job at the right time. Sometimes you're in the right place at the right time, which is similar to what Michael Flynn was like over here. The manager, he ended up, you know, re-signing to the club in January. And two months later, he took caretaker charge of the club, fell into the role. And three years later, look at him now, he's still manager and he's been very successful with us. So you can have a plan of where you want to be and what you want to do. But I suppose the biggest thing with football is the plan changes all the time. You know, if if you're a, for instance, you could be a club legend somewhere and could be, you know, this is where you could end up going back management, managing or anything like that. But the chairman changes or the board members change from the time you were there to to when the time the new job comes around. You mightn't even be in the reckoning. So mm. I, I don't know what what I'm going to do. I don't know whether it's coming home. I I want to fit, I want to play football for as long as possible. First and foremost. And I think the, the way to do that is probably staying over in England. I think it's more sustainable again. So, you know, Why do you if say I, that? It, uh, just because, again, you go back to, you are a little bit older going back. Uh, if I finished my contract at 34, would it be a full-time team that's going to be signing me? Or would it be a part-time team that be signing me in, the, in, in, um, in Ireland? I don't know. Would the wages be a, if the similar you know what you get over in England possibly could be in a couple of years time considering what's what going to happen with the salary cap here but there's just a lot more options over here and there aren't that many options in Ireland because if I went back I'd want to obviously play for Shamrock Rovers that would be my ideal dream move back if I was to go back but in two years time with the way that club is 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 developing would they want to sign a 34 year old striker on a two year deal or a year deal probably not um, so then it's probably probably best case over here to try go in somewhere where you've been going in looking almost with, with a coaching job lined up in the in the future um, if that was Newport brilliant you know I mean I'd be here at the club when the contract finishes five years I'd love to sign a new one after that again um, and end up you know coaching some stage or managing over here as well and you know why not Newport so you'll be but anyway you'll be rooting for Rovers from afar this year then I assume then if presumably hopefully football here restarts which obviously is the the one thing we're we're waiting for at this stage but I I think you do keep up with, with how things are going still. Yeah, completely. Look, I suppose the 
it was it was such a shame when everything happened. Obviously, for for you know health reasons for everybody, it was a, it was you know, and and it's I all you always feel bad when you say stuff like you know like this that it was the the worst time and ever for Rovers because they were flying, mm. but obviously there's bigger there's bigger course, issues. Yeah. Minute, I don't mean it that to be like taking about football as everything or whatever, but it's that. But Rovers had started the season flying, you know, and it's a shame for the league as well because that Rovers Dundalk game was one of the best games that probably the league has ever showcased, especially in the last ten years. Um, the football that was played on it, the the quality of the goals, and now that's forgotten about. So. You know, as much as people are desperate to go back and watch football and, and watch sports again, you know, it's unfortunate that that game will be forgotten. Probably the best thing RT could do is re-show the game the week before football is to go back to keep, you know, people look, this is what's on, on show in the league. And it's such a good league. And you only have to look at the the Irish squads, the players that have come out of it, and how many players are in the, in the first team international squad that have all got League of Ireland backgrounds. Um, to see that the league is really, really important. Um, so I hope it does football does come back. I want Rovers to win the league, obviously. Um, you know, it will be interesting to see how or what happens. But I also think it's probably a great opportunity now for potential of, you know, all Ireland leagues being spoke about and, and everything else because, you know, every league is going to suffer. So maybe, I'm not saying that the best thing to do now is join them both together, but if there's ever a perfect opportunity to sit down and have a proper conversation about it, it's now, I think. Well, Paul, listen, it's been great talking to you. We'll let you go and uh, play your golf now and hopefully uh, it goes as well as it did when you played cookie all those years ago. But yeah. uh, it's, been, it's, been, it's, been, listen, it's been good talking to you. And, Thanks uh, a million, Podge. We'll catch up with you again. Thanks very much, lads. Great chatting to you. Top man. Cheers. Yeah, Porrick, he's a... Uh... He's a very likable guy, Dan. The question I asked about the pizza, I believe what happened there was um, Alan Keane and Matthew Blinkhorn and whoever they lived with, they ordered a 50 quid pizza order, but they insisted to the driver that the address was actually where Porrick Hammond was. And Porrick Hammond was left with the bill. Now, there is a lack of clarity as to whether the bill was ever paid, either by the actual purchasers of the pizza or the orders or Porrick himself. But in any event, Porrick didn't really seem like he wanted to clarify it himself. But he's made a good career for himself after all of that. After the pizza incident, yeah, yeah, no, he, he overcame that, and um, yeah, like he's, he he has had a great career, and it is. I am struck by um of that era, like himself and Owen Doyle, and we we spoke to to Park about it. Like the they couldn't play for overs at that stage because uh, the the twig and and Baker thing being so strong, and and yet he you know he went went off to have a great career, and I think it's a very interesting point he made in the flow of that, and we sometimes ask, uh. You know, you, you might talk to people occasionally in like League Two or whatever and say, well, why don't you come home? Um, and to me, like from afar, when it's not my job, you think, yeah, God, I'd rather, you know, live in Dublin or live in your, your home place, Cork or wherever, than maybe some of the more unglamorous outposts in England. But I do think that it's, it's, it's not often spoken about. There's that fear for lads that if they come home and they aren't brilliant at home, like if they aren't, if they, find, if they find at home that they're not starring, then all of a sudden the drop is very similar. And I was actually just thinking about another player, like Dylan Connolly, who um, basically when he left on dog, I think he'd struggled to describe him as first choice. I think he would have played every second game almost. He was, but he wasn't like an outstanding dog player at all. And when he was sold, it wasn't as if people were like, oh, 
here's another departure uh, like Towell and Horgan, or Horgan and whatever. There was almost a sense of, God, they got some money, fair play, you know, because he was a sort of a contentious signing. But once you get into the English market and you do okay there, moves pop up. But he's at Bradford now. Um, he was on loan there. He was outstanding this season. And all of a sudden, there's other options opening up to them. And that's why, you know, you might have looked at someone like Zach Albazetti. And, and my view was like, God, another year at home, maybe. You know, go to Dundalk or go to Rovers and become the best player in the league. But I suppose the flip side of that is, if you go to Dundalk and Rovers and find that actually you're not better than Mike, you know, you don't exceed above, you know, stand out above Michael Duffy or, you know, Farouja or whoever it might be, then, then you don't get that move at all, whereas maybe at Lincoln you just you're in the English circuit and your name becomes known in that. So it's a very interesting point. Like as I said, like sometimes the players who want to come home, they don't want to come home because they're not sure they're going to kill it at home. And as a result, it's better just to stay in England where the work is. But we'll see, like this EFL thing now, um, where they've suspended the season. Um, and I've done some pieces during the lockdown with players over there. There, and Aidan Fitzmaurice had a piece in the Independent actually about there's a feeling that there might be a bit of a wage collapse uh, at some clubs in, in the lower leagues. And, and, and suddenly the financial equation might drive some people back. But it's just an interesting insight as to why sometimes people just want to be over there. Because the other, you've got yeah, 92 clubs. You know, you, you know, here you've got three or four maybe that can offer you a comparative living. It's interesting you say that in terms of the two leagues and um, you know coming back here because it was something that we noted when the league started, which seems a million years ago now. But some of the English players coming over here on loan and um, getting an experience of Irish football. So maybe at the lower leagues, the appreciation of what the League of Ireland of Ireland quality is like might change, and you might see more of a players coming to and fro because there was there was what seemed to be a fairly successful experiment on the part of the likes of Pats and Watford to bring players from the lower leagues in England and young players from even uh, higher clubs up to come back here and they seem to have a good appreciation and bring it back to the clubs and actually the League of Ireland is not a bad standard. Well yeah but I think that's two different things like there's there's an appreciation of the football benefit but you know of the the, the professional in their late 20s early 30s with a family and and you know the career pro for them, it's probably not as attractive because it's not as secure. Yeah. But for the you know, 19, 20, 21-year-old, these were like Amund and Dodd and all these players got their grounding. I think it's respected as, a, as a, a breeding ground, as a good level to gain experience. And it's become a much, much, much younger league. And like, it, it is certainly a, a, a problem that we face with, with, with professionals in this country uh, that once they reach 27, 28, um, there is a sense sometimes that if you're not at one of the top couple of clubs, you know, challenging for trophies and, and so on, you really have to start thinking about life away from football and after football. And that's why we have an early enough retirement rate or an early enough ceasing to become a full-time player rate um, because it's, 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 it's harder. It's, it's a different story if you have, say, our, our, lower, our lower down teams and they have guys that are 21, 22 um, they're in a different headspace in their life. But it's, that, that's why we don't see as many older full-time professionals maybe peppered down the league. And, you know, that, that, that's, that's something that we're obviously grappling with now. I mean, we are at a very crucial time in, in our league's history at the moment. And that's, it feels like we say that every year and every two years. But 
the pandemic is now like it's 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 there's, there's two things like as there's one there's this ongoing debate of what's going to happen with the 2020 season and that's that's one debate and two it's like the, the need to just take stock generally and we actually have that bit of thinking time here that that you would hope people you know per, have productively used that and i i know that there's been weekly meetings and a lot of the news stories coming out in the meetings very naturally have been well, what happened, what's happening in the here and now, because we want to know what's happening in the here and now. But there also has been steering group discussions about the, the direction of the league. There's been, um, I know that the FEI, and I did a piece on this last week, that the FEI are planning more um, rafter reforms and changes. And obviously the new FEI, for one, I mean, the, the, the people that are there at the moment still have a bit to prove and particularly I think to win over even aspects of the, the League of Ireland community particularly in terms of how they've handled aspects of the, uh, the the 2020 story they've got work to do but it does seem that they're moving towards again trying to get funding in place that the academies affiliated with senior clubs um, take on a more structured shape with partnership with schoolboy clubs but a product of that might be, I feel, I feel it's definitely moving towards a stage where we may have fewer senior elite clubs that tick all the boxes. Um, you know, I think they're asking clubs to evaluate what they can offer and maybe clubs that don't have a, or aren't fully on board with an underage structure, they, they might find themselves in a slightly, slightly exposed to where the league is going forward. Um, but that, that, that's, that's maybe for another day to tease out because in the short term, a lot of people just want to know what's happening. Will we have football again this year? What do you make of Rory Higgins and the, the job ahead of him? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, listen, it's, it's only right that Stephen Kenny should get the chance to, to bring in his own staff. And I listen, I, I think, you know, the, the, the more we talk about, oh, well, how is this League of Ireland person going to prove themselves to the senior players? It becomes, it becomes a, a line. It becomes a talking point. It's almost as if now it's going to be predetermined that if Stephen Kenny doesn't work as Ireland manager, it'll be because, well, it's because he came from League of Ireland and the, you know, the players didn't buy into it. And in fact, it could be completely different reasons if it doesn't work out that it doesn't work out. It could be just because made bad tactical decisions it's, but it's, it's, not, it's not even so much League of Ireland it's the fact that genuinely a lot of these players will not know Rory Higgins at all yeah but like I mean that's the thing I mean but he's, he's, he's like who was who was his predecessor mm. do you know yeah so like no. I mean no so like it, it, it's just it's just because it's a new story he came from the dock but every football club now in England like has has staff and people in positions who as he touched on there who haven't played the game but they're just you know and Ray has very much played the game but what I mean is they haven't played at Premier League level and the, the, the point is that like once the manager appoints you that's it like we, we sometimes I think we give footballers too much credit as though they deeply analyse everyone who comes in and, 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 and looks up their career on Wikipedia and, and yeah. views like as, as I've, I was on News Talk not long back with Gary Breen and Damien Delaney and and uh, speaking about the, the Kenny appointment, and and you know they maybe came out from different places, but the, the the broad point was the same: that once you go in and start your job and impress people, that's it. Within yeah. a week, he'll just be a member of the staff. It, it's, it's an if, important if he's not doing well, it becomes well. an issue. But if, if yeah, 
Like the, the, the opposition analysis, like this is the winning or losing of a few points here or there in a qualification campaign in theory, because that goal that he pointed out, the left back is a flaw in this regard. It's a very important job. And I, I imagine for him, it's just massively exciting that all of a sudden he's catapulted in the Ireland set up. Of course. And I'm, to answer your question, previous to that, we didn't necessarily under uh, Martin O'Neill really have someone firmly in that role in a very defined way. There was mm-hmm. like Noel King and various people, I think Jerry Taggart. Um, they were actually, sometimes they'd be a bit elusive about, well, who have you got watching this other game in the group? You know, who's off? Mm-hmm. We have someone there. Who might that be? And it's almost a bit vague. So it was an, uh, it was an undefined department, really. And, you know, you would have had Jared Dunn within the camp who's doing the analysis from the Irish perspective, as in the keys, their own analyst that's with them and would be recording and clipping and stuff. But this is a, almost a new role in a way. And I think maybe it might be more a case the players look at it and think, okay, um, we now have someone, we know this is our guy who has been away watching Bulgaria. And if you have questions, maybe you can, you can refer to him. But as he said, like, it's a strange one. Like he might end up, um, let's say Ireland have nine games this year, like he might end up on, around the Ireland bench and, and the dugout for maybe one of them. Yeah. Even yeah. that. So it's a... It, it is a know, strange role. It's a strange role. Yeah, exactly. It's not as if he's day-to-day going to be in there with the players um, sort of in, in the way that, uh, you know, Keith Andrews and, and Damien Duff will. So um, it's more a cog on the wheel uh, than, than necessarily being someone that's, that, their, that their performance is going to be scrutinised in great detail by, uh, by people. If, if generally, and the irony of it is, if you're doing your job well, you probably don't get as much credit for it. You, it's, it's just assumed that you're doing your job because professional analysis at a high level is a, a standard part of the game now. But, Absolutely, um, yeah. Well, I yeah. Suppose, yeah. If we if we were to to kind of wrap up, I was just talking to Shane Keegan before the show, and he was just detailing how um, traveling twice to Dundalk, uh, t- traveling to Dundalk twice a week to get tested for COVID, um, that is reality at the moment. But obviously, the situation is moving fast. By the time you listen to this podcast, something might have happened. But there does seem to be a feeling of renewed optimism, maybe over the last week or two, that football will come back. Yeah, I mean, I, I listen. My stance throughout this is to try and not get bogged down in like broad predictions. predictions. Yeah. Um, I know we can't all be qualified epidemiologists like uh, like yourself. So the 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 got your the, snide the, remark in for the episode there. Yeah. Well, I mean, if anyone's been following your social media, they'll be just they'll be surprised that of those a thousand scientists the other day, I was scanning down looking for your name in the list. Yeah, but I, I have the contrary opinion, to be fair. No, you do. More, more, more contrary than contrary, to be fair. I, but anyway, um, so, I, I, but in saying that, right, I do think that what we, what, what we might have said two or three weeks ago, you know, can be different now and might be even different in two or three weeks. And I think um, a lot of the debate around, say, where the league was going a couple of weeks ago, I think it's moved on a bit now, personally, or it should have moved on. Um, but I do slightly sympathise with the authorities in that it now looks very, very plausible that crowds will be in games this year. Touch wood, all going to plan. You can't 100% say it because our cases could shoot up in a couple mm. of weeks after people have, have gone out there and been, you know, you look at the queues for shops and you're thinking, oh, oh God, hopefully not here, right? So I think in whatever they present now, I think realistically, if you're going to look at the 2020, you have to calculate that, that there has to be a provision or a scenario where, okay, by whatever, August, September, um, and this could change in two weeks, we might be thinking of different timelines, but to make a provision 
that you will be able to have some crowds in and can you maybe then take a bit more of a risk because uh, you will have this income that you that we didn't have in the proposals two weeks ago because at that point the, the the broader stance in the country was more conservative and the, whatever your view on it the fact was that it did appear that under government guidelines and, and the, the the way the wind was blowing at the time that it would have to be closed doors for the rest of the year that it would and just this, have this to, to be a lot of clubs neutral like, grounds if, if you know, this this looked like we can't have a season then because we simply won't have the money to make up the short the, the shortfall exactly yes whereas now but i think it's a complicated debate because i don't think you can jump ahead 100% and say Football is back with crowds from August because Absolutely. what you have to do has to be conditioned, and so that there's so there's almost a there's a then you're talking about not a risk potentially existing, you're talking about a risk definitely existing. But I have to say this is just my personal opinion. Um, while it was a reasonable opinion, I think two or three weeks ago to think well maybe the best thing. Uh, we should do is wait till 2021 now i wouldn't necessarily agree with it but i respected it um i, I could see why clubs would, would think in those terms um now i would have almost disagreed with i said well we're going to be behind closed doors in 2021 possibly then too so we may as well get used to it now but i think with where we're at in the country at this moment in time on the 10th of june um with our figures with the early even the early testing results being good um, you know, other sports, other countries are looking at crowds, attendances, like ones that were very conservative initially. You know, the GEA are now talking about having 20,000. You know, even rugby, which is a more contact sport, is uh, has sort of plans in place. To me now, it's you just cannot credibly make the argument anymore that there will be no football, league football here in 2020. If that scenario comes to pass, if the health situation remains as it is now, then it's it's shameful. Um, and I think we are we are in this mode where there's a couple of clubs who have um, objections, and I understand that. I think if the, if spectators are factored into it, I suspect that some of those objections will drop, and then we're getting to one or two clubs where you're thinking, I'm wondering what your reasons would be. Mm. for not wanting to come back if we have spectators in the plan. And I, it leads me to think, where is your eagerness to come back at all? And should that be allowed and I just, um, to halt yeah. the industry for everyone? I, yeah. I don't think that's, that, that's going to fly now. And I think that um, if players and clubs and the health officials and the government are satisfied, then we are football clubs. We are a league and we should play. Um, okay, but can but I just stop you there? Properly, right? It needs to be properly, like there's, there's big questions to be answered and, and, and the authorities have a yeah. job to do with that. I'm not being flippant when I say no, that no. either. But from, from talking to you sort of over the last week or two, my feeling is you envisage crowds, but you don't envisage 100% crowds being no. allowed. At, right. So say even 50%, which might be even optimistic, right? So just play the devil's advocate for the club here. 50% may be essentially uh, season ticket holders, um, L- Literally people not paying into games because obviously they're fearful of going to games. People with underlying conditions probably very wary are not going to games. So will it be the panacea to have crowds back at all or will it be effectively season tickets and a smattering of others and making up very little difference in terms of the money that they should be bringing in on match nights? Yeah, you see, there's a club-by-club aspect to that. Um, and like, you see, there's a broader debate then as well as 
if we think things are okay, is this plan for 13 more games, is that too, is that too conservative almost? Mm-hmm. Should you think about another series, you know, which then would obviously be more gates, you know, which, which can create a situation? Yeah, like, see, 50%, like it depends what you do with the layout of your stadium as well. And some clubs have more flexibility than others in terms of standing room and spacing. And, you know, I know the FEI at senior level are looking at, um, you know, clusters of family together. Like we assume that, you know, 4,000, you know, well, if there's say 2,000 people, everyone has to be separated. Do you put families together? Now that's, how do you police that, of course? I mean, like... Well, like clubs, I spoke to one club and they're like, you know, there should be sections, literally sections of the ground that are for elderly people who, if they do want to go to the game, they can feel relatively safe away from people, younger people that may, uh, that they may come into contact with so that they've, there's literally a section... Oh, no, I mean, that's an interesting plan, but I mean, there was a lot of, all that needs is one person and and the elderly sections like a nursing home. So I wouldn't be entirely sure about that. I, I can see what you're saying. Yeah. Um. But but like there's 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 you, you could you could chip away at that point and, and come at it from a different view. Um. Listen, if football was coming back a couple of weeks back, um, there was no additional income from spectators at all. Uh, yeah. And, and so I I still think you know the facility to have um take take the showgrounds for example. Um, whatever it might be, um, you, you know, you, you, can, you can see how you could get a thousand people, for example, maybe into somewhere like that. You know, maybe there's no away fans and you have to space out home fans or whatever. I take your point about season ticket not being, um, not being a, an initial source of income, but you ha- you're also forgetting that if, if games aren't played, clubs are probably going to have to refund season ticket holders. It's not as if that money is just dead money. Like, um, the cost of stopping is not just your wages. Like, there's also that season ticket aspects as well, too. So, um, like, you know, the chance to actually, for that revenue to remain in your coffers as opposed to having to pay it back is still actually a financial win compared to to no football. Yeah, we've got to wrap up, Dan, right? But there is a wider point here. And again, we say we're not sure what's happened uh, between the recording of this and you listening as the listener. But this is the time for the FEI. The FEI, as much as you've made allowances for the FEI, FAI during this podcast, fair enough. It has had ample time now to come up with something. And this is where it proves the new FAI, as, as it's been called, this is kind of its first chance to prove the League of Ireland where it's at because it needs to come up with some sort of money from somewhere to make this viable. Yeah, and, like, and the other thing is, like, but we have to mention the key elements of it, just so people are aware. Like the wage subsidy is crucial. But the wage subsidy, the continued wage subsidy, which is in place till the end of August uh, and possibly longer. I, again, here's the argument that you, you want to get games in between now and the end of August. Like, should, if things are going well, you almost want to exercise that subsidy while, while it's there. Um, yeah. But the hope that that would need to go on for longer. Um, FIFA, I mean, Infantino, Gianni Infantino spoke at the weekend about helping lower tier leagues. And... Um, this is something that the FBI were sending out to all uh, delegates. And I think they, they've been speaking about this external support all along. And it has been FIFA that's been muted. And it does appear it's going to come to pass. But again, the timelines may not be definite by Thursday. That, like, here's what FIFA are offering. It might be conditional. Here's what we think they might be offering. So yeah. I think whatever package they present is going to have clauses within it that it requires it's going to require a degree of a leap of faith from clubs. And I, this is where, you know, they, they probably need to be, to be 
to take a degree of a risk, just it can't be enough of a risk that it's, that it's reckless. And that's, that's the balance in act that they have to face. But what's the point of a football club? It's to play football. Ex- exactly. And, and that is my view. And clubs who are really, really keen not to play, like how low are their expectations for the rest of the year? Mm. Um, and how much of this has been influenced by um, their own position? Now, listen, self-interest exists at all levels of the league. Let's be clear. But the reason that the clubs at the top are, are, are more desperate to get back than, than most is because they're, they know they're going to win most of the prizes and they need the, the European qualification and so on and the bigger wage bills. So mm. let's not just, you know, uh, just say, well, the clubs at the bottom want out because uh, they might get relegated. But, uh, you know, there is no reason, it's no coincidence that like, that's where some of the concerns are coming from. And if they only have 13 games to save themselves, um, God, it becomes pressurised. And there will be, there will have to be, if the First Division is part of it, there will have to be some element of uh, promotion and relegation as part of the plan. My personal opinion, it's just my personal opinion, that maybe, um, now we'll see if everyone comes back. And I'd be very sceptical if we do come back that everyone would. But let's just say everyone did come back and that's a leap. It may well be that a concession of sorts is that there's no automatic relegation but that the team that finishes bottom goes into the playoff series and, you know, that's, that's what you do. Now, that's, that's not being discussed at all, as far as I know. That would be my solution, maybe, that a team doesn't get automatically relegated on the basis of 18 games, but they, has the, they have the, the chance to save themselves. Um, but I think that there's going to have to be an element of, of um, discussion around it. I mean... There's obviously a lot of stuff that's been discussed in meetings and you know off the cuff stuff and comments that then is coming out as this is the plan and it hasn't always been the plan at all and like the league will have to be settled this year you know the champions will have to be crowned this year and I think that will happen um, but it's 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 it may not be resolved on Thursday I think it'll take time but I think sorry to repeat your earlier point this is very important for the FAI hugely important for the FAI. Uh, for our standing and that's why I think when push comes to shove I expect them to push the boat out and make a very persuasive argument because if they don't they're undermined from the start I was thinking the other day we're going to wrap up now when they showed Shamrock Rovers training Pico Lopez's hair has been absolutely transformed and I remember when we had Sean Cavan on the show and he was saying um, that uh, was Dan Dan Carr um when he was at uh, Shamrock Rovers, when he changed his hair, Sean Cavanagh's joke was it was like a new signing. And that got me thinking about Sean Cavanagh and John Mahan. You have these lads whose season has been absolutely torn apart or badly disrupted. And they're like, through their injury now, they've been able to recover, gradually get there, and they'll be able to come back at some stage in the season. And they'd be like, actually, happy days. This happened at a great time for me because I didn't miss as much the season. So there are some players who are going to benefit, but I'm, I'm very confident football will be back soon. I'm, or at, least, at least I'm very hopeful. And um, maybe we'll get back to a weekly show, Dan. We might get back staring down the barrel of that camera. Yeah. A long, Butch lingering Harmon. pause. Johnny Butch Harmon style turns the camera. I'm not sure if I should turn the camera at all. And we will finally escape from the backdrop of... People aren't seeing this now. I'm in the house. You appear to be in front of your bed. The old bedtime chat stuff, it was grand for, you know, yeah, a couple of months. But now, now we're just, we're, we're, we're itching for a, something a bit more, I think. Bed and, and rope in the same sentence. A good way to end the old uh, podcast. Thanks for listening. Um, we, we'll be back uh, very shortly. We obviously have had a staggered enough schedule the last while. Thanks to Rory and thanks to Pods. Chat to you soon. But there are limits to your life.